Radio Mano Papachango. This is me, Dr. Christopher Ryan, coming to you from a hammock in Barcelona, Spain. By the time you hear this, assuming you hear it right away, uh, as soon as it's posted, I will be in Miami, Florida. Sunny Miami, Florida, soon to be underwater. Uh, I'll be there interviewing um, a lovely woman by the name of Riva Winter, who is uh, an expert on coral and trying to recover some of the coral that is even now being bleached into oblivion by our wonderful civilizational processes. And um, so I'll be down there with her. And then uh, maybe I will also be interviewing some folks who work with uh, dolphins doing therapy with um, autistic people and PTSD. I'm not sure I'm still trying to line that one up. And then I'm going to visit my uncle, who is uh, an amazing guy. Some of you may have seen him naked, uh, in fact. Well, you didn't see him. He was naked when you saw him, but you wouldn't. Mm. Well, here's the story. Uh, when Sex at Dawn came out, my uncle, who had been... It's a long story, which I'll tell you um, when and if I do a podcast with him. But basically, he's one of my favorite relatives. He's an amazing guy, very charismatic and funny and friendly. And he has a way with women unlike anyone I've ever seen. And, you know, as with all true genius, his technique is a complete lack of technique. He's just unguarded and friendly and... Um, he just inspires confidence. And even in his 70s, I think he's late 60s, early 70s, you know, I go out with him and um, it's like going out with a fashion model. Women just sort of come around. There's like a gravitational force field around this guy. And um, anyway, that's all beside the point. Uh, the reason you may have seen him naked is that when Sex at Dawn came out, he lives in Florida and has a pretty unapologetically non-monogamous uh, life going on down there. And he's got some women friends and they all know each other and they're all cool with what the situation is. And, you know, he's not lying to anybody. Everything's on the table. And uh, so he was in bed with two women. I guess there were three women because somebody was holding the camera and uh, they decided to take some funny pictures. So he's in bed reading Sex at Dawn and with two women in lingerie, you know, snuggling up next to him on either side and all that. So he took a bunch of pictures, did a video as well, which was very funny. And I posted them on the Sex at Dawn uh, Facebook page, which is now the Chris Ryan, Christopher Ryan fan page or something. I don't know. This was... This was back before I knew that you could set up a page separate from your personal page. And, you know, the, things were very confusing. Anyway, so the um, I posted the photo 
photos in the video there and people thought they were really funny and then they started replicating it and sending us photos of themselves in various states of undress with our book and so he really was the one who started that whole thing and at this point i don't know if we've got over a hundred of these photos but we've received photos from all over the world some of them as simple as just someone standing in front of the the mirror naked holding a book up over their junk and others extremely staged you know took hours to put together um some of these photos you can just see the incredible amount of work that went into them uh it's an amazing thing uh to see that take off and he and his friends there in um, naples florida really triggered the whole thing so i hope to do a podcast with him um which will be uh Extremely interesting if he agrees to it. I don't know if he will, but I'm going to shoot for it. So anyway, I'm in Florida, I guess, in the future, unless my plane crashes, in which case I'm not. Um, But at the moment, I'm still sitting in Barcelona, Spain, in a hammock, a beautiful big hammock in the living room of this apartment that we are now back in. Um, and then uh, after Florida, I'm going to cruise out to California. My sister's getting wet, married to a guy she's been living with for uh, over 10 years, I guess. So it's not like uh, that kind of wedding. It's more like a, let's just confirm this. And uh, But they're having a big party, so I'm going to fly out there for that and uh, see them and my folks and you know maybe drop in on Rogan and Duncan if he's back from his You Are God tour. And uh, maybe we'll get another shrimp parade in there. But that's always hard to hard to promise, you know, too many moving parts. This week's episode is a special one. I've been sitting on this one for a while. Um, This is Dan Pardee, who is one of the most knowledgeable motherfuckers out there when it comes to health, healthy living and particularly sleep. He's extremely well read. Um, He's done a lot of original research, published scientific articles. Uh, He's associated with Stanford University and uh, some other prestigious university. I don't remember what it is right now, but uh, you can Google him. Uh, Go to Dan's Plan. Uh, Just Google Dan's Plan or Dan Pardee, P-A-R-D-I, and you'll see all, all his information. He's done stuff like consulting to... I think it was the Navy SEALs, um, you know, on on sleep efficiency and how to maximize their uh, their mental cognitive focus and all this. Uh, he's, he's a really interesting guy. And he's the kind of guy who could piss you off, too, because, I mean, he's good looking. He's super smart. He's I mean, his wife is drop dead gorgeous and smart as hell and funny and kind. And they've got this kid. I'll tell you how cute this kid is. When I'm around this kid, I start thinking things like, oh, I should have had kids. Okay, you can imagine how fucking magical a kid has to be to make me start thinking like maybe I maybe I should have had kids. If I'll tell you, if I could get a guarantee from someone that my kid would be like their kid, then I would have a kid. I I would just go out right now. I'd like find the nearest woman and say, look, I got this signed paper here. Let's do this, you know, Um, because that kid is just amazing. Anyway, so this is this episode is with Dan Pardee. 
it's wonderful. He's wonderful. I had a lot of fun. I always have a lot of fun hanging with him. And maybe, just maybe, I'll uh, I'll see him on this trip out. Him and his gorgeous wife and magical kid on this uh, trip to California. And then I come back from California, spend another week, two uh, two weeks actually in uh, Barcelona. I've got a friend coming to visit. We're going to go on road trip up in the Pyrenees. Um, oh, you know this friend, actually. It's Justin the Fireman, episode 99, I believe. Um, and uh, so he's coming out. It'll be his first trip to Europe. So I'm going to show him around a little bit. And then I've rented a cabin in on the side of a mountain in um, the Canary Islands on uh, Gran Canaria. So I rented this cabin in the middle of nowhere. There's no internet. There's no phone service. It's completely isolated. And, uh, you know, have a little fire every night. I'm going to be up there for at least a month. Finally, driving a spike through the heart of civilized to death. I've that book has been I've started it 20 times and I haven't finished it even once. Um, yeah, there's a story to tell about that. I, I ended up basically in a nutshell, because I get a lot of emails saying, hey, when's that coming out? What's going on? All that. And OK, here's the thing. In a nutshell, there I started off writing a book, the book that the publishers bought was a book about how with a little bit about like okay what was prehistoric life really like and now that we understand that how can we view how can we use that knowledge to better understand and adapt the modern world to our natural proclivities in a nutshell that's that's what the book was proposed to be. So I started writing that book. And now I've, I've been writing that book. I've been chipping away at it for years now. Um, while I've been dealing with all this other stuff, things you don't know about, family illnesses and, you know, personal situations that I don't talk about on the podcast. Um, but also, you know, the, the media stuff and doing a TED Talk and hanging out with Joe Rogan and starting a podcast and all these other things that have been happening um, so I've been sort of, you know, it's been a back burner kind of thing for, for a few years now. And as I worked on it, I realized that there was this other question, which is what is civilization, right? I mean, because in the first book proposal, they're sort of like, okay, you know, th here was how we used to live. Then civilization happened. And, and now here's, here are the problems that have resulted from that, Right. But as I was working on it, I, I realized that there's a big question. What is civilization? And then there's this really profound question, which very few authors have asked um, because it sounds so ridiculous, which is, has civilization been a net benefit to humanity? Again, that sounds ridiculous. Most people will scoff at that. Maybe not you, because you're you're a self-selected crowd who are already pretty suspicious of the benefits of civilization. But, you know, your average guy walking down the street is so indoctrinated in the benefits of civilization that they it's a real tough sell to even get them to listen to that, to even think about that for a second and listen to some of that argument. 
So, of course, that attracted me a lot um, because, as you may have gathered, I am a bit of a shit stirrer and I get motivated by uh, both by bringing relief to people who are suffering as a result of lies they've been told about themselves. And if you've read Sex at Dawn, you know, that's a big element in Sex at Dawn. But also I, I like speaking truth to power and you know what can be a deeper fuck you to power than writing a book length argument that civilization has not in fact benefited humanity um so i got really excited by that and drawn into that and i ended up writing a lot about that. And that then led me into other things, some of which I've discussed on this podcast about systems and what is an organism and, you know, is what is an individual and, you know, how parasites change the behavior of organisms and thus actually become part of the organism and, you know, all this kind of like higher level systems um, thinking. And I got really interested in that intellectually and sort of drawn into into that current. But then when I sent in the manuscript to my editor, um, he read it and said, okay, look, this is great writing. You're, you know, these are really interesting ideas, but you know, holy shit, this is a whole different book. And it's a bit of a mess because, you know, which, what book are you writing here? You know, uh, and totally legitimately, um, by the way, those critiques, so I'm at a point now where, I, you know, I think I could be bummed out about that because essentially what that boils down to is like, this is not the book we, we want. And, you know, so what are we doing here? Um, but what I am feeling is like, OK, those are really big ideas. And it's true. Those aren't really the ideas that I said I was going to write about. And the ideas I said I was going to write about are really interesting. And that's a that's an important book. So and some of the material that I wrote for this, I can use in the first book, particularly the introduction and the conclusion, which are often the hardest parts. So what I'm doing in the mountains is I'm taking the parts of this manuscript that I can use and then I'm filling in the chapters that I skipped over and forgot about when I got all carried away with this other thing. Um, so that's the bad news. The good news. So that's going to delay publication. So publication is not going to be this fall as I was anticipating and my publisher was anticipating. It's probably going to be, um, uh, you know, early 2017, spring 2017, somewhere in there, um, depending what happens in this cabin in Gran Canaria. Uh, but the good news is that I'm, you know, two thirds of the way through another book that's going to be fucking awesome. Uh, and, it, you know, and it's a real high wire act because it's the kind of thing that if I don't put it together really, really well, I'll sound like a raving lunatic. And if I put it together very well, it might end up being an important book. So that's why it's really worth taking my time on that one. So anyway, I'm going to be focused on getting civilized to death out, put it together. And, um, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Cause like I said, there's important shit that I'm going to be talking about in there, important ideas. 
So that's the update on Civilized to Death. Um, I heard from Chip, who worked with Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts. He's an old friend of Bennett's, and I guess he moved to Thailand years ago to hang with Bennett and went into the business with him, and now he lives there and so on and so forth. And anyway, Chip said the business is still running. They're going to keep supplying shirts, so... The Shore Design T-shirts will continue to be a part of this podcast. And uh, so that's a beautiful thing. And my mother says that there's been a surge in orders. So maybe some of you are thinking, oh, my God, there aren't going to be more Shore Design T-shirts. Better get one now. So that's cool. Um, But I guess there will be. So happy to have more orders. Mom is sending them out even as we speak. But uh, don't fret. It looks like the Shore Design connection to this podcast will continue. Uh, What else have I been thinking about? Justin Alexander, who's been on this podcast a couple of times, a traveling guy. um, He's been in Nepal for the last couple of months, uh, pretty much since I talked to him in Thailand, uh, helping to build a school that was wiped out by the earthquake a year ago. And he is... You know, he, he's um, documenting what he's up to on Instagram. And uh, I would encourage you to check out, if you don't already follow him on Instagram, check him out. He's an amazing photographer. I mean, every photo he puts up there is just fucking fantastic. Um, anyway, you can see the work and the, the school that's developing and um, him, you know, he's, he's fucker. He even looks good when he hasn't had a bath in two weeks. And that's some of these photos you can see. It hasn't rained there in a long time, so he's looking pretty dusty. Um, anyway, go there. Check out Adventures of Justin. That's the, the Instagram uh, feed or, you know, whatever his account, Adventures of Justin. And if you have a little spare cash and you're thinking that you would like to support someone who's doing something directly as opposed to sending money to, you know, save the children or the World Wildlife Fund or whatever, where, you know, maybe 40 percent of it's going to overhead and people sitting behind desks in Zurich or whatever. You know, this is a way that you can send some money to this guy who's in Nepal who I know and you know if you've listened to his episodes on the podcast, he is busting his ass there, helping them. And he set up a GoFundMe account so that you can fund them. You can send them some money that they can use to buy concrete and rebar and tiles for the roof and to to pay some of the local people to bring them, you know, jugs of water on their heads or whatever it is that they need. A hundred bucks, a hundred bucks goes a very long way in Nepal. Um, So if you have a little cash and you're sort of looking for a way to fund a project directly where you know the people who are involved, this is a great way to do it. Um, Anyway, you can find the link to his GoFundMe thing in his um, bio at Adventures of Justin on Instagram. Um, If not, you can also hit him up on Twitter and Facebook and all that. Just look for Adventures of Justin. Okay, what else did I want to talk about? I read a book recently, uh, which I can highly recommend to you. It's called Shaman, and it's by a guy named Kim Stanley Robinson. He's an American author who writes a lot of science fiction 
Uh, this is the only book by him that I've read, but he's apparently one of the best-known science fiction authors. I don't read a lot of science fiction. Um, but Shaman is a book set in prehistory. And as you can imagine, having spent a couple of decades now immersed in the literature of hunter-gatherers and prehistoric life, when I read a fictional account of prehistory, I am primed to notice mistakes um, or, you know, people who just sort of went along with the prevailing wisdom on prehistoric life without really studying it or getting, you know, beneath the surface into what's really going on. Uh, this book has none of those mistakes. This is a wonderful book and very well researched. This guy really knows uh, a lot about the way our ancestors lived. And so it's great, you know, like down to the way the the, the main character weaves uh, the um, um, twine to make a snare and where he places it and how he bends the twigs and tr triggers it. Little details or, you know, what sorts of berries he eats or or what sort what part of the animal he eats first when when he's hunting and all these little details that really you have to. You know, most people don't know about it. this guy really studied it well. So if you want to read uh, an interesting novel set in prehistory, Shaman by Kim Stanley Robinson. OK, what else? I guess one other thing I wanted to talk about just briefly. Yeah, I've been going on for 20 minutes already here, but uh one thing I was thinking about is th this recent uh, brouhaha with um, the uh, Roma series where I was acted like a dick a little bit and giving people shit. And then that created all sorts of kickback. And then I responded to the kickback. And then, I, you know, I was getting all this sort of feedback from some people thought it was, you know, as I said, that I was being a dick. Other people were like, yeah, man, that's great. You know, give them shit because, you know, like one guy wrote and said, yeah, as a young person, I know you're absolutely right. We're lazy and, you know, we should uh, think better. And, you know, so he was sort of on board with it. And um, but one of the things I, I think most of the feedback was just like, hey, man, you know, we like the unedited aspect of this. And so someday, sometimes you're in a shitty mood or, you know, your friend dies and you're pissed off and you're so you lash out and whatever. And the authenticity, we like the authenticity. Right. So keep it up. I really appreciate that kind of feedback, because here's the thing. You know, I lived in this house full of fashion models, right, for three years. So I spent a lot of time with really beautiful people. I've got friends who live on yachts and float around the world. I've, you know, millionaires, private jets and all that. I, I mean, I know people who are considered to be great geniuses. Um, I know people who are very famous. And here's the thing. I think that all those people have a significant part of themselves that secretly believes that they are frauds. And this is not a criticism of those people. In fact, it's a compliment. Because here's the thing. Imagine you're this gorgeous fashion model, okay? You're gorgeous. But you get up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror. First of all, it's you, so you notice the flaws. You don't notice the beauty. 
So that's the first thing. You just notice the flaws, right? You notice you look, oh, your eyes are fucked up or you got a zit on your cheek or, you know, your nose looks weird today or or your hair's all fucked up. You just woke up in the morning or you got snot running out of your nose or you got like that crusty shit on your lips that people get when the drool dries, right? That's what you notice. So you look at yourself in the mirror. You don't see this gorgeous fashion model. You see you. And you know that when you take a shit, it stinks. And you know that, you know, sometimes you fart at night. And you know that sometimes you leave uh, skid marks in your underwear. Okay? You know all this shit. But other people don't know it. And you know they don't know it. And you know that when they see you, they see the makeup and the hair done and the nice dress and maybe even some photoshopping that was done on the images that they see so the you that they envision and the you that you envision are very different and you know that so you feel like a fraud and you're worried about disappointing them when they meet the real you you can apply that to everything you can apply that to People who are considered to be very smart. They're very rich, so everybody thinks they're so smart. They know, they know that a lot of that money, maybe most of it, maybe even all of it, came from luck, from connections, from the fact that their parents paid for them to go to Harvard where they met Mark Zuckerberg, who put them in touch with this other guy, and then they did this, and then they They know that that's where the money came from, not from their genius right? Or a genius, take a genius, take some great scientist who's invented and won a Nobel prize and yada, 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 or has written amazing symphonies, you know, Beck or someone who's written all this great music. Or I just saw a documentary on George Harrison recently. Some, you know, a beetle. Oh my God, he's a beetle, a fucking beetle. But the struggle to remain sane for those people is the struggle to not drift over into the perception of them that the world has and to remain with the perception of themselves that they have, even though the perception that they have of themselves is of just a guy, not a genius, or of just a woman, not a world-class beauty or, or, you know, I'm not saying women can't be geniuses, but the, not the world's vision of you, Right? The vision that you have of you, which is much more comprehensive and much more humbling. Now, if you don't have that conflict, if you don't feel like a fraud when you get to be famous or rich or, you know, you're receiving all this public acclaim, then you're fucking dangerous. Then you're a psychopath. Then you're a Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump has this conflict. I don't think Donald Trump goes to bed at night and thinks, oh my God, I'm not who they think I am. And that's the problem. (laughs) That's the fucking problem. I don't think Hitler did either. Yes, I have compared Donald Trump to Hitler. Anyway, so uh, that's why I'm very gratified by the people who wrote to me and said, yeah, okay, you're a dick, but you know, I figured you must be a dick. So yeah, I guess part of it is just keeping it real. So on that note, let's just go ahead into this. I've already yammered on longer than I should have this time. Uh, Dan Pardee, wonderful guy, 
Look him up online. He's got uh, lots of information. He's constantly putting out information about sleep and nutrition and exercise and all this kind of stuff. You can follow him on on Twitter, uh, as I do. You can check out his Dan's plan and his human OS page is going up soon. I talked to him the other day. He's working on it now. So I hope you'll follow him. He's full of great, great stuff. And I really appreciate you listening to this podcast and supporting this podcast. You know how to do it. If you want to do it, I'm not going to tell you this time. Oh, music. Shit. I forgot to talk about the music. I always forget that, you know, and then at the end when I've already put the music in there, um, it's too late and I, I don't want to go back and record another thing so okay the music i'm going to play uh, because dan pardee is a sleep expert i'm going to play a version of the classic mamas and papas song california dreaming that was recorded by parliament funkadelic in the early 70s i believe Um, Now, remember, I put out these podcasts in mono, so you're hearing this in mono. If you want to hear it in stereo, damn, I don't know. I I mean, maybe I can make a stereo MP3 and put it up somewhere that you can download. That's probably what I'll do. So, yeah, I'm making work for myself. But if you want, if you love this tune as much as I do and you want it in stereo, uh... I'll tell you, send me an email. Oh, shit. No, I don't want to do that because <laughs> I'll get I'll get 100 emails. And then what am I going to do? I can't answer everyone. Um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll find a link. I'll put it up on my Web page. It'll be on Chris Ryan, Ph.D., uh, you know, the the podcast thing. I'll put it up in the notes to this episode. I'll figure out how to get a link up there so you can download it. Because I don't think this is available commercially. This, uh, and even the version I have is, you know, was on a cassette that I carried around for years and then I digitized it. And so it's kind of muddled, but uh, it sounds great in stereo. Anyway, it's a freaky hippie, black hippie version of California Dreamin'. That is just fucking awesome. And then the other song I'm going to play, I'll just interject this one in there somewhere. I'll play California Dreamin' right now, but then later I'll play a song called So Long Lonesome. Uh, It's a piece of music, not a song. There are no words to it. It's instrumental. It's by a band uh, by the name of Explosions in the Sky. And I don't know anything about that band. I think they're from Austin, Texas, but I'm not sure. And I heard them because they did some of the soundtrack to the TV series Friday Night Lights, which you may have seen about the football, high school football team in Texas. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful TV series. Um, Anyway, I I was touched by some of the music on that TV show, so I looked them up and I uh, found this song, So Long Lonesome. It's a uh, very interesting explosions in the sky. I'll put a link up to them as well on the, pod, on the webpage. Thanks for listening. I've yammered on way too long. Hope you enjoy this episode with Dan Pardy. Check him out, uh, and I'll check you out later. Ciao.
I'm here in the lovely home office of Dan Pardee in the backyard in Mill Valley. Last time, I think I mentioned to you, the last time I was in Mill Valley was at um, Sasha Shulgin's, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was his birthday party or what, but it was at his daughter's house. It was fantastic. Yeah. And... Uh, and someone told me Janis Joplin lived back here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of history back here in Mill Valley. Big time. And I have yet to learn all of it, or at least even the low-hanging fruit. But I, I am learning things through osmosis daily as I <laughs> run into people with factoids like that. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of freaky history back here. Yeah. So uh, I just uh, had a, a brief tour of Human OS, your new project that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, just launched and uh but it, it was all visual it's very slick and beautiful it's like a dashboard for your life people it's mm-hmm. a very interesting thing you track exercise nutrition sleep patterns sort of every it's sort of a complete monitoring of your physical and mental and even psychological uh well-being and it's a, a way to keep track of what's going on and how to improve it and it's it's very interesting it's it's a nice it it looks good too and i I like the way you can organize things you know to your own uh, taste it's thank you good luck with that that's you've been working on this for a long time i have and it's funny because there's quite a few companies that already do tracking uh so that's not necessarily novel but the way that we do it is different and it's actually we take a simpler approach than a lot of people do it's simple but it's integrated is what i like because you're right i mean i've got a thing on my phone that tracks my sleep yeah you know i I had a uh, one of those it wasn't a fitbit it was the other one uh, jaw yeah yeah Uh, i got one of those as swag when i did my ted talk oh right yeah so i wore that around for a while and but it you know, and I've got a thing on my phone, the running, you know, couch to 5K thing, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Um, but it does feel all fractured. Mm-hmm. Everything's in different parts of my life. And it's yeah. nice to be able to just see it all on one screen. You know, I've, I've spoken to that specifically when I've presented before that I think the solution to our health is not having a hundred different apps on our phone that each do something specific and and tailored. And actually we don't need to track everything in our lives. Um, But I think there's real utility to doing that. And part of it is getting some objective data based off of some goals that you set for yourself. Right. Kind of like a dashboard of a car, you know, it's not something that you, necessarily you know you it, it's useful it's useful to you if, if you engage in it it's right in front of your face and you can you can use it to of course know how much gas you have i mean eventually if you were driving without a gas mo- monitor you'd probably be able to know eh, i probably should go get some gas but you're guessing yeah with same with this you could be missing out in a, in a half an hour of sleep regularly and not realize it and um that actually happens specifically to me. So you know I speak a lot about, I'm a sleep researcher, I talk about the subject a lot, and when I first started to track my own sleep, I was telling everybody that I was getting eight, eight hours a night, and when I was, I measured it for two months and I was getting seven. Mm. And I, I said, okay, well, let me see if I can actually get more. So I started to be more mindful of my own behaviors around bedtime. And it's a really interesting example because educating me on the value of sleep is the wrong behavioral lever to pull at that moment it's i'm i I understand its importance right 
for me, it was more just getting that feedback that showed me what I was really doing versus what I thought I was doing. Right. It's well, it's, it's like so many um, diets actually work, not necessarily because, you know, like the color diet or whatever bullshit diet, you know. Yeah. Often they work just because it pulls your attention to what you're eating. Totally. And so if you're paying attention, you eat less yeah. because you're noticing it, you know, or chew longer and you'll eat less, you know. Yeah. Just slow down, focus, and things change uh, without really any effort other than the attention. Yeah. I think that it's being healthy in today's world is in some ways harder than we give it a credit. Oh, because, a lot harder. Yeah. 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 I, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's not, it's, you know, it's within, it's, it's definitely within my grasp. It's not that, it's, it's not that difficult. I know what to do. If you think about all the different influences on our health, we don't even understand a fraction of them, I think. Well, well, you know, we were talking about this just before I turned on the mic, and I yeah. said, "Let's get this, let's get this recorded because I want to cover this." Yeah. We were talking about the research, uh, you know, very simple research where there's a bowl of candy and a sign that says "Take what you want," mm. and they measure how much people take, and they know if you have a big spoon, they take more scoop than the smaller scoop. Yeah, and it's not that people want more. Yeah. Right, you take what you want, but yeah. if there's a bigger scoop, you take more. I come to America, the beers are bigger, the bag of chips is bigger, yeah. the plate of food is bigger, the burger's bigger, everything's bigger here. Yeah. So, what happens? I put on weight, yeah. I'm not changing, my activity level isn't really much different, my stress level, you know, I don't know if that's different or not, but. Um, I think there's probably a slight change in microbiome. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe because of all the antibiotics in the American food system. But also the serving sizes are bigger. I'm not hungrier. I'm just eating it because it's on the plate. Yeah. So I think there's a, and this, this is something that I, I addressed in Civilized to Death, there's, um, our environment is hostile. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about how hostile the natural environment is, mm-hmm. right? This Hobbesian bias. But I don't think the natural environment was setting out to fuck anybody over. Mm. You know, yes, snakes are camouflaged and you might not see them, but that's the nature of the snake. But you don't have, you know, beautiful women trying to trick you into going into debt all the time, Mm. which we have every time you turn on a TV set, you know. You don't have friendly, you know, the fawn selling you reverse mortgages. You know, like you've got... The, the civilized environment is all about fucking you over, yeah. selling you more than you need, yeah. selling you food that's bad for you, selling your kids sugar for breakfast and yeah. with cartoons. It's like a really hostile uh, world that we live in. So I think it's harder to be healthy yeah. in this world because the world is actively trying to make you unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. And... A lot of interesting work on this very subject was done by Brian Wansink and then another researcher, John DeCastro. And when I first became aware of it, I was literally laughing out loud reading the stories. Because first of all, he does fun research. Mm. Um, one study that uh, Brian Wansink did is he had, uh, it's a famous one, a, a bowl that would refill as the subject was eating. Oh, really? Yeah. But undetectable to the person in the study. Really? Yeah. And so... That's hilarious. I mean, listen to this. So the person that was eating from this self-refilling bowl ate 75% more 
than the person who ate from a bowl that didn't refill. And what was the food? It was tomato soup. Oh, perfect. Now, this I think is, I think that that is one piece of information that's fascinating. What I found even more interesting is that the uh, people didn't rate themselves as any more full, mm-hmm. even though they ate almost twice as much. Right. So a lot of times we gauge our perception of fullness based off of what's in front of us. Well, I'll just stop eating when it's complete. Right. And as right. another bit of work that... Uh, that one sink has done is to look at how serving sizes have increased over the last couple hundred years. Mm. And, um, it's, it's a huge factor. It's a huge factor. So it's, it's one more example about how if you do care to be healthy, which I think the, I think self-preservation runs strong within each of us. And sometimes you just need health to be framed in the right way for it to feel compelling to say, okay, this is what I do about it. Um, so when I say it's challenging, I don't think that it's unaddressable. I think it very much is. But you have to yeah. engage with it. Well, it, it, and, and it requires you to recognize your environment as being hostile, I think. And that's, yeah. that's psychologically painful. Because we want to believe that the smiling face on television mm. has our best interest at heart. We, yeah. you know, or the smiling face of your doctor at the hospital who's yeah. prescribing you know, statins to deal with your, your high blood fat or whatever it is that, you know, but as is made clear, I think by the increase in serving size and by the difference between the American diet and the, you know, Mediterranean diet in Spain, the problem is that the interest of corporations don't align with the interest of the organism. Yeah. And in the United States, the corporations have the upper hand. Yeah. And you can see it everywhere. Yeah. In Europe, they still don't quite have the upper hand. Yeah. So in France, if you go... I mean, I remember when Starbucks came to Spain. Mm-hmm. It's like, are you kidding? You think, <laughs> you think you're going to sell coffee? And, you know, um, and they're successful in major cities, yeah. um, but they only sell to tourists, basically. Right. Spanish people won't go to Starbucks. Yeah. I mean, silicon cups, or not silicon, um, styrofoam cups. Mm. There are no styrofoam cups. When I was mm. first got to Spain, mm. there, it was impossible to get a coffee to go. Because, mm. like, well, who, who would walk down the street with a coffee? Right. You don't do that. Yeah. You sit down, you have your coffee, you know? Yeah. So there's still these cultural impediments to the corporate takeover of daily life in Europe because the tradition is so much more ingrained. Yeah. But in America where there isn't that tradition and there's much more sort of openness to commercial dictates, you, you can see the effects. Yeah. And, and like Cassie was saying last night, like the obesity mm-hmm. in this country is unbelievable. So it is addressable. And that's why I think human OS is so important. And, uh, Products like this who, that that pull attention to what's actually happening, not what you think is happening, right? How much soup did you really eat? Yeah. Not how much do you think you ate? And you know, I and by the way, the, the tracking element is one component of the site. Not everybody's going to want to, you know, do that. Um, although it's growing as people are start to become familiar with the benefits of tracking through their watch or their phone. Um, that's going to, it'll be more, I think, like a smartphone sort of adoption. It's going to just continue to grow where it becomes normal. Uh, right now, the way that a lot of 
behavior people you know an approach that is very common to change behavior is just through information podcasts mm -hmm. books blogs right? right all that and oftentimes it is a, kind of a, a problem with the way that we think is just by being exposed to information is enough for it to then be kind of implemented in our lives yeah and often as you know uh, people will remember a fraction of the material that they've read or exposed to, uh, or they, they, they only remember it even as they're reading it. A month later, it's a, it's a fraction of that. And so usually people will kind of walk away with a, a piece of good information here and there. But I thought there would be real value to then tie everything together so that there was some cohesiveness and um, to the, what you're learning. So every time you learn something new, it doesn't feel like, ah, it's one more thing to learn. It actually feels like, actually, that's one more thing that supports, that reinforces this overall mm. approach to how, how you're living. Right. So there are learning modules as well in this uh, human OS. That's right. right. Yeah. And I bet that's the primary usage of the site for people because we're right. curious. We're, we're curious in novelty. We're curious to find out more about these things that are affecting us. And so, you know, an, an example, so much talk about diet rarely discusses what we're not eating or when we're not eating. So fasting is a topic that is extremely interesting. It, it's certainly something that you're hearing more about um, regularly, but I've created a course with fasting with Jeff Rothschild, who's published several, several journal articles on the subject. He's very well versed in it. And um, I feel like I, I feel very lucky because I'm learning for every time we develop a course, I'm learning a ton from it. Right. Well, you get you get the leading experts in that particular thing yeah. and you get to pick their brains. That's fantastic. It's great. And and so it's as good as having a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Speaking <laughs> of which. Yes. Yes. You're start. You've got the podcast up and running or it's about to be. What's. Yeah, it's so um, it's up and running. Uh, I've been doing, so I've been recording interviews with, mostly with researchers, so some interesting article comes out that and I'll contact them and say, I'd love to interview you about mm -hmm. the research that you've done. Uh, I'm also scheduled to be speaking with everybody that's in, in health, so if you're an entrepreneur that's doing something interesting, if you're an investor that's doing something interesting, if you have some take that relates to health in any way, uh, and you're doing some interesting work, then... That's the scope of the podcast. What's the name of it? It's Human OS Radio. Okay, good. Yeah. So it's all integrated. Yeah. And do you get, for people who sign up for Human OS, do they have access? Well, I guess the podcast is free, so you can That's get right. that anyway. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. Right. Wow, very cool. Yeah. So you and I met at Paleo, at a Paleo FX uh, conference, what, two, three years ago? Yeah, something like that? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you were hanging out at Tucker Max's house. Yeah. And uh, we got to chatting. I guess you and Cassie were chatting while Tucker and I did a podcast. Yeah. And uh, then you were on, I, I've had you on this show once, I think. We talked yep. a, a, about sleep research a bit. But I don't remember really hearing your background, like how you got into because sleep research is such an interesting thing. You know, I'm, I'm going to interview Stanley Krippner uh, yeah. later today. Yeah. And he did a lot of very interesting. He ran a sleep lab in a hospital in New York. Did he really? In the late 60s at Momenides uh, Medical Center. Huh. And he did um, the thing that actually that sort of established his reputation early on was he did research on uh, sleep telepathy, mm. where he had... Um, people in a different part of the hospital mm. 
trying to mentally send images to mm. sl- people who were sleeping mm. and um and his the the hypothesis was that people were more receptive in the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states when mm-hmm. they were going in and out of REM sleep. Yeah. Um, very interesting research, you know. Yeah. And in those days, all this dream research and telepathy and all that stuff was really happening. But this is before you were born, probably. So what got you into it? Yeah. So I stumbled into the field, but I had I've always been interested in in health. So I was. Uh, I played sports growing up. I got I, the I had the, the fortune of getting injured, which then made me mm. start to focus on the body in in different ways because I wanted to, you know, figure out how to make myself better. So my original interest was kind of both in I'd say sports medicine and performance optimization. How do I get? How can I do this drill better? What can I eat? Um, I just kind of geek out on that sort of stuff. Mm. But so when you were a smart jock. <laughs> well, you know, I I get obsessive about certain things, and health is something that I've been obsessive about mm. for a long time. And it's always, and the the sub subject within health um, changes, and I pursue a different area, and I want to really invest myself. But I, that's that was I think the kind of the origin of it. And when I got to college, I basically didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do specifically, but I took sports medicine classes and physical therapy and, you know, facility management to training. Like I was just taking everything in kind of the sports health arena. Eventually I got my master's degree um, in exercise physiology. And within that department, there was one kind of track that you could do that was more application. So how do you help people become better athletes? There was another track that was more about helping people uh, that was more uh, neuroscience oriented right. and I gravitated towards that uh-huh. and that's so now um, I do uh, cognitive neuroscience research and I do it at Stanford and in the Netherlands and I look at how sleep deprivation what I call ecologically relevant amounts so instead of giving you one night where you don't get any sleep at all it's like what happens if you just miss a couple hours that's relevant to what a lot of people experience mm. where missing a full night is not common it happens to all of us occasionally, but it's far more likely that you're going to miss an hour or two here or there. Yeah. What are the effects on behavior the next day when that can do, that happens? Um, but how did I stumble in in the first place? Well, I was working for a genomics company. The company went under. Genomics is uh, a field that uh, it's genomics and bioinformatics. You apply high-powered computer technology to then try to mine data-rich sources, and in this case, it was genomic information. Mm. Um, So it was really an interesting field in the early 2000s. There was about 30 to 40 companies in the space. All of them uh, disappeared. And the talent, either the genomic or the bioinformatic talent, was absorbed into pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And it was just a market before, it was, you know, products before a market. Yeah, you know, we were selling a million-dollar product to pharmaceutical companies, and and the idea was that if you could look for what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, certain markers on genomic data, you'd be able to then, you know, theoretically identify certain drug targets better. And so it was a really cool idea, but people said, well, we don't have that, but it's just before. Yeah, we, we don't. It's not in our budget. Right. <laughs> so um, anyway, from. From there, my connection with sleep was through a contact. When the company went out of business, I was put in contact with um, 
my, the, my boss at the time said, I want you to speak with uh, somebody who is running a company called Orphan Medical. And Orphan Medical um, was, a, was appealing to me. I never worked in the pharmaceutical industry before, but they were looking to develop drugs for rare disorders. And so an orphan disease is something that ha- is, a, is a disease that has mm. 200,000 people or, or fewer. And um, usually that's, that size of a population is, does not provide the financial remuneration right. that, a lot, that, that larger pharmaceutical companies you know, will find attractive. And so orphan would work with the FDA to get tax breaks on development so that you could bring, they could bring the drug to market with, for less money. And then, um, you know, we had all sorts of patients, patient assistant programs. So I liked what they were doing wow. and how. That's great. A non-evil pharmaceutical company. That's a rare thing. I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I loved working for them. Everybody that I was very inspired by the intelligence of everybody around me. Yeah. You know, never, never did I hear any sort of conversation about how we were going to screw with people ever. Right. It was all, people were so committed. Now, actually, I'll give you an example. It's one of the proudest moments in my work career. I was working for um, a woman, Diane Guinta, who's the senior vice president of clinical development. And she, we were developing a drug potentially for fibromyalgia. It was approved for narcolepsy. And um, it was early. There was no drug approved for fibromyalgia at the time. And uh, a drug by Pfizer was approved way ahead of schedule and all of us you know got the news and we're looking at each other kind of like deer in headlights like what does that mean are we is our department going to be cut if this is it was kind of a scary moment and diane gathered everybody in a conference room and she started off and she said what a wonderful thing for fibromyalgia patients they finally have a therapy that can ease some of their suffering and i just had the biggest smile on my face i was like that was the most perfect reaction mm. to such news like this mm. is what we're doing this is what we're doing it for we're, to help to help ease the suffering of people. Right. And if that means that I was gonna lose my job, which I didn't, then okay, you know? Well, I'll go, I'll find another job. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, that's how I got into sleep. And so since I started to work in that area, uh, because the medication, um, sodium oxabate or GHB, uh, was, is for the treatment of certain symptoms of narcolepsy, I started to go to sleep conferences and <laughs> I was fascinated by everything I was learning. I couldn't. No, is that the GHB that I know? Yeah, that is some interesting stuff. It is. It that is. is wonderful stuff. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful and dangerous in in a sense. Um, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, it was legal for a long time. Yeah. You could buy it online. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, essentially. It's like all the best uh, elements of alcohol. Yeah. The disinhibition and the relaxation and all that without any of the toxicity. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it's naturally occurring in the body. So the body metabolizes it very cleanly. Yeah. And you wake up the next day and you feel like you're... 16 years old you're like fresh and rested and your head is clear it's the best sleep inducer i've ever come across it is a very unique medication for sleep so um yes you're right it's produced in every cell in the body it's a short chain fatty acid that has all sorts of unique properties 
um, one of which it, at the right concentration, it's, it doesn't reach this concentration endogenously or naturally, mm -hmm. but when you take a pharmacological dose, then you can induce concentrations that are um, not natural, but ha start to then affect certain receptors within the central nervous system. And they can affect sleep in a way that's different from things like ambience and sonata yeah, right. There's no hangover. The problem is it's extremely dose sensitive. You can overdose very easily. And if you mix it with alcohol, you yeah. go into essentially a coma yeah. that is, as again, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, but not medically dangerous, but people don't know that. So then you wake up intubated at the hospital and it's a fucking mess. So you can go, what's been described as a coma with GHB alone with the right dose and with that, what it means, it's, it's actually medically different than a coma in some ways, but you are unarousable yeah. um, for about three hours. And um, during that time, very few people have ever died under the influence of GHB alone unless they are experiencing something called positional associated asphyxia. Mm -hmm. So their, their body was in a position where they, they basically cut off their airway right. and they stopped breathing and then they died because of that. A lot of other deaths that have been attributed to GHB is when there's a combination of central nervous system depressants on board and you just never want to do that. Right. You don't want to take multiple different drugs that will suppress the central nervous system because when you do that, you can affect breathing and uh, and, and that's, and sadly, it's, it's been attributed to several deaths. And there's also a, a you know, black market for GHB and whenever that's the case, you don't exactly know what you're getting. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I, yeah. I pulled you off what you were talking about. So that's what you got, got you into sleep. Is yeah. G, is GHB being used in, in sleep enhancement uh, these days or is it completely prohibited now? So it is used um, in the treatment of narcolepsy, mm. and originally, uh, a research, which explain yeah. what narcolepsy is. Yeah, so narcolepsy is a neurological condition um, where people who are afflicted with it um, have a loss of hypocretin, which is a neuropeptide that is produced in the in um, the kind of at the hypothalamus area. This the way to think about what hypocretin does. A good analogy is think of a symphony conductor telling other instruments when to play, mm. okay? And those other instruments in this case are cell groups that are a part of the arousal system of the brain. And so what GHB does is it will kind of augment and facilitate the, uh, the awake state so we can consolidate what's called consolidate wakefulness. GHB does this? I'm sorry, uh, hypocretin. Right, okay. Thank you. Yeah, hypocretin does. And so, for, um, and, and I won't get it too much into details, but there are, uh, there's different types of narcolepsy. There is a type of narcolepsy, which is narcolepsy, narcolepsy without um, cataplexy, which is one symptom which I'll describe that in a second because it's pretty interesting. Uh, but, and then there's narcolepsy with cataplexy. Narcolepsy with cataplexy is where you are missing hypocretin. Narcolepsy without is where you actually aren't missing hypocretin, but you have the same degree of sleepiness. So every, most people understand that if you're narcoleptic, you're very, very sleepy. And the reason being, uh, at least for narcolepsy with cataplexy, is because you, um, you don't have this other 
you know, a very valuable part of your arousal system to keep the cortex alert functioning. Mm. And so what happens is you sleep more like a cat. You are up for a little, for a couple of hours, and then you have to sleep. Then you can be up for a couple of hours, mm. and you have to sleep. Mm. And that happens across a 24-hour period. Right. So you can't, cons- you can't sleep for long, and you can't be awake for long. Now, it's interesting that we call this a sickness, but as you say, it's normal behavior for a cat. Yeah. Could it be, is it necessarily a sickness or is it just that it doesn't fit into our eight-hour workday, go home, sleep all night schedule? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think a lot of the problems of narcolepsy, a lot of the reasons why they have to take very, you know, very powerful doses of um, medication like methamphetamine, and that is a legally prescribed Hmm. for narcolepsy. Right. Um, And it's... The attempt is to then help people stay awake for a full work day. So it's really a mismatch between the structure, the social structure. And because you think about hunter-gatherers, I I, I don't know how much you've read about hunter-gatherer sleep patterns. I don't know how much research there is. But what little I've come across seems to suggest that uh, people don't sleep eight-hour blocks at night. They're up, they're talking, there's generally no privacy. So, you know, people, someone will wake up and tell a joke and everyone laughs and then goes back to sleep and mm-hmm. babies are, you know, and they're hyper aware of sounds coming out of the, the environment, the jungle or wherever they're living. Yeah. So it's a very different, I mean, our sense of what normal sleep patterns are is yeah. a very culturally determined and arbitrary thing isn't it yes i mean that that is a that is a, a true for um for all cultures like for example a lot of cultures around the world will maintain a siesta and right. there doesn't seem to be any sort of issue health issue long-term health issue in those populations that maintain a biphasic sleep pattern right. which means that some of their sleep happens at night and a little bit happens during the day right but well, and also the second sleep in medieval europe right yeah so that was some work out of i think virginia tech but a historian kept noticing the reference to something that he called second sleep which was first and second sleep which was you'd go to bed um and then you'd wake up a couple hours later and you'd be up for a few hours and during that time you would have sex you would be up and read or think and then you would you'd go back to bed and have your second period of sleep yeah so um that i think unfortunately it was misinterpreted as that's natural sleep right um so showing that that occurrence that had had had, you know seemed to occur is not then an indictment that consolidated sleep for eight hours is, right. is a wrong pattern it's just as arbitrary because what i'm thinking is they woke up to get the fire going again mm, yeah right so again it's it's something that's a response to the environment yeah you wake up the fire dies down you get cold you wake up you start the fire you read a little bit you get laid you go back to sleep and yeah. everybody's happy yeah but that doesn't mean that's natural it just means that's you know it's one way it's one way. Although we have been living in the presence of fire for a long time. So yeah. to what extent that's you know, integrated into our genes is an interesting question. Well, one, one thought about why teenagers naturally stay up later is that might have been their first adult responsibility, which was to uh-huh. watch, watch the community for predators and maybe to keep the fire going. Uh, and it's the only time they could like, get away with stuff that the adults weren't watching. Yeah, <laughs> sneak out and have some fun. It's all sorts of... So you, I'm sure you're aware... I mean, trying to determine what is the natural sleep pattern, Yeah, uh, I'm sure you're 
you're aware of the research where they, the guys went down in the cave, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. is that, does that uncover this, does that answer this question? Or, but, but you know, 72 hours of darkness isn't natural either. No. So, so that type of research was um, really important for us as humans to start to understand the component of what's called circadian timing right. and how light will influence our biological time. Right. So in this study, um, I think it was Michael Cephas, his name, went down into a cave for 53 days uh, and it was subterranean, no light at all. Uh, except for a little uh, candlelight that he had for that um, was very extremely minimal, and um, basically what he what they found is that his own internal timing started to change compared to the people that were getting exposure to light on a day by day basis. Right. So what that that means is that um, you know right now uh, when they when he let, left to go uh, into the cave. His timing, let's say it was two in the afternoon. Well, his research colleague who was standing right next to him, it was two for him and it was two for, for uh, the, the guy that went into the cave. But five days later, 10 days later, while it was biolo- you know, biologically, it was 2 p.m. again on another day for the guy that was still above ground, it started to be 11 p.m. for the person in the cave. So he started to, a, a, his, his own internal timing started to change. Mm-hmm. And that gave way to a, the, a, the, a whole field of circadian biology research. And light is a, the major synchronizer of our circadian systems. And there's other right. influences as well. So that's why it's not, you know, whenever I get asked how much sleep do I need, it's, a, it's kind of a difficult question to answer just easily. Um, it's answerable, but one component is the timing of your sleep. Right. And because our bodies are basically prepared to do certain activities at certain times of day and including sleep. So you get better sleep if you're sleeping within a consistent sleep period. If you always sleep between midnight and eight in the morning, then your sleep is going to be better than if you went to sleep at 4 a.m. and woke up at noon because even though it's still eight hours, right? It's the same amount of time, but you're not going to get as deep of sleep. The the stages are not going to be as consistent in how they concatenate to one another. So it's not as restorative. I find for myself, I get very deep sleep uh, around dawn, Mm. I don't get deep sleep at night. Mm. I, it, it's like I can sleep and it's all right, but I, I'm in and out. And, and then, and then, like this morning, actually, mm-hmm. uh, I I was awake before dawn, sort of heard the birds and saw the light coming. Yeah. And then I fell asleep, and that's when I go deep. Mm. You know, for yeah. that last uh, that last bit. And I always I, my I and I don't know if this is true, but I. When I was in college, um, I set up my schedule so that I generally went to sleep at around four or five in the morning yeah. and slept till noon. Yeah, and that to me seemed like the natural way to be. I, but again, you know, who knows? It's you could do so as long as your schedule is consistent. So you don't have to sleep between midnight and eight. If you could, let's say you went to bed every night at four in the morning and you woke up at noon, if that was consistent then you're going to get better sleep by mm. having that, that be consistent. Right. Now, you could make an argument that going to bed at 10 o'clock and waking up at 6 is better sleep because you are um, at least more 
um, there's more of a chance for the natural lighting environment, you know, being up during the day mm -hmm. and then getting dark to influence your sleep in a natural way. Right. Right. If you're up until 4 a.m., then you're actually spending a lot of your wake time in darkness. But right. we can manipulate that now through artificial light. Right. Which, by the way, is much less powerful than outside light. So right now we're in a room, we've got some artificial light and some windows. So I'd say it's probably like totally, you know, guess, but maybe 6,000 lux, which is a measurement of light intensity. We go outside those doors into the patio and it's, it's a cloudy day. So it's probably 70,000 lux. Wow. Yeah. That's it's that big a difference. Huge, big right. difference. Yeah. And also the wavelengths are different. You, you know, you're getting a much more complex light from the sun. Yeah. What, what about, like I use uh, flux, I think it's called, yeah. you know, to yeah. reduce the blue uh, spectrum yeah. at night. And I, I think that, I mean, I don't know, but it seems that that's, that works pretty well. Yeah. Um,
wonder to what extent uh, there's been research on the effects of the spectrum of firelight. Mm-hmm. You know, because we talk, I read this stuff and it says you need, you know, put blackout curtains on your windows and you want, you know, or wear eye guards, you know, you want complete utter darkness is ideal. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then I look at, as I always do, I look at the prehistoric environment. I say, wait a minute, these guys are sleeping next to a fire. Yeah. They're under starlight and or moonlight, yeah. which is intense. Yeah. And, you know, you've got strong moonlight a week, at least out of the month. Yeah. So I don't see how anybody was sleeping in absolute darkness. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I've always been a little bit suspect of that recommendation that you need to sleep in complete darkness. Here's what I think is happening, and, and I'm going to reference. Uh, there's there's actually been a study that's come out recently. Uh, it's the it's the most comprehensive study to date on uh, hunter gatherer sleep. So I'll tell you about that in a moment because we can describe light and other influences. Oh, you had this guy on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there are, I'll geek out for a second. So there are cells in the back of the eye that act like rods and cones Mm -hmm. in in, in that they can transduce photons of light into a signal that goes to the brain. But rods and cones go to the visual cortex where we turn light into images. In the mid-90s, a researcher, Ignacio Provencio, discovered that there was a different group of these cells called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. So it's kind of a long word, but it's describing... You are geeking out. <laughs> intrinsically photosensitive... Retinal ganglion. Retinal ganglion cells. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so it means that they are ganglion cells in the retina that are responsive to light. Right. They're and, brain cells, yeah. essentially, that reach into your eye. Yep. Yeah. And they will then communicate from the eye, not by the optic nerve, but something called the retinal hypothalamic tract. And they go to the master clock and they say, this is what time of day it is. And those cells are most sensitive to the blue, white, blue light spectrum. Really? And that's why we put on goggles at night that filter blue light. And that's why we have F.Lux on our, com- you know, is that how you pronounce it? F dot Lux. I, oh, it's probably, I, I mean, yeah, that's I know, how I, do. I know there's a dot there. Yeah. I never, I, F Lux or F dot Lux. Yeah. It's a free program, free app, by the way, for anybody who wants to download it. Yeah. And what it does is it just filters your phone and or computer screen, uh, based on what time of day it is and where you are in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so wait, you were in the middle of something there when we get, uh, so the research and oh, and so that's why they're recommending the the absolute darkness. But that was never the natural environment. Well, if you think about the natural environment, we would spend a lot more time in darkness. So melatonin is produced under something called dim light melatonin onset. So when the light becomes dim enough and changes tone, when the blue light. So think about the tone of light at a sunset. It goes from a less full spectrum you know, blue, very intensely blue light, which you may not necessarily perceive the light as blue, but it is rich in the blue light wave right. wavelength. And that's telling the brain. So some, let me mention something really important. Falsely, some people have thought blue light's bad. Mm. No, it's a daylight signal. Right. So you want it at the right time and right. not at the wrong time. Right. That's the best way to think about it. Right. So you don't want it right before bed because you're telling your brain it's day when it's night. And that's common, right? We all live in artificial light now. With, and then as we have more high-definition televisions and 
Kindles and things like that, you know, these are now emitting light directly into our eye and it's giving the brain its daylight signal. But now here's gonna, here's another complication, right? Yeah. People sleep during the day. Lots of people sleep during the day. Siesta cultures we mentioned earlier yeah. and hunter gatherers often will just crawl in the hammock and take a nap. So is it scientifically established mm-hmm. that the brain has some sort of difficulty transitioning from day to sleep? So this is um, this is the work that Jerry Siegel had recently done with three different hunter-gatherer tribes. And actually, they're not all hunter-gatherers. Some were hunter-horticulturalists. <laughs> it's funny. You're, you're being very specific because you heard me giving Steven Pinker a bunch of shit about that. I don't want to be, well I don't get, I don't, I don't want to be on the, you know. Well done. You don't want to be you. in my crosshairs. No, no, yeah. no way. Good. Be specific. Uh, so, <laughs> but these were the, the Hadza of northern Tanzania, the, um, the San of the Kalahari Desert. The, They've been there for 20,000 so, years. Um, do you know that? That's what that click is? The, you said that, yeah. Yeah. Is that how you say you did? San. Kung San, yeah. Kung San. Yeah. And uh, the Chimani of um, Bolivia. And so they're all semi-equatorial, about 20 degrees south of the equator. And so temperature range for all three communities, even though they're, you know, spread out uh, geographically, um, are the range of temperature is about 50 degrees to 90 mm. total around the year, uh, you know, across the year. So never too hot, never, you know, too cold. And they instrumented the, these people with what are called actographs, which is kind of like a Fitbit. Mm. Right? So they, they measure activity, but they also will measure light exposure. Right, and they also had these temperature-sensitive boutons buttons that they would put around the campsite, so they could see, okay, how what's the temperature like where they're sleeping, and then also what is the temperature like. Um, they they had a, a finger temperature monitor and one that was worn on the abdomen, and they could then say, okay, well, what was the, you know, what was the temperature, um, you know. They do some extrapolation to figure out what was their, you know, their their temperature of the, of the individual. And what they found um, is that most of the light exposure that these communities got was in the morning. Then, so between, they'd wake up before dawn, before sunlight, and they'd be up for until about, you know, uh, till about 9 a.m., getting a lot of their activity early in the morning. And then by noon, they were out of the sun in shade. Mm. And um, that would, they would stay out of the sun until about three in the afternoon. And then they would, uh, go back out and, and do more hunting or gathering. Um, now, did they nap? So it's difficult to know exactly just from looking at activity, but there was definitely periods of rest in the middle of the day. But uh, Dr. Siegel's group estimated that naps probably were only occurring about 1% to 2% of the time. So that doesn't mean that no cultures ever napped, but in these communities, naps were not that frequent. Mm. And that does say, it tells you a couple of interesting things. One is that then the amount of sleep that they're getting at night is probably adequate, right? If they had inadequate sleep to fully resolve all the sleep, what's called sleep pressure, then they would probably be needing a nap in the middle of the day. And that's what, you know, if you're sleeping six hours a night in, in Spain and you take an hour-long nap during the day, that's what's happening. You still have some pressure left up to, right. to help you sleep during, during the day. Mm. Um, and so that, 
So that was one thing that was very interesting. The, the reason why the study got as much press as it did is because what they determined is that the amount of sleep that these communities got was less on the lower end of what we get in modern culture. Mm -hmm. that, is, that was contradictory to what um, a lot of uh, people had kind of believed, which was that we, we currently in modern society sleep less than natural living communities. But part of the confusion is that, and I wrote about this in a blog that accompanied the interview, is that there's something that there's, there's sleep time and there's sleep period. If I were to ask you how much sleep did you get, you would go through some sort of, you know, kind of argument in your mind that said, well, I went to bed at around midnight and I woke up at eight, so about eight hours, right? In a sleep lab, we could say, okay, you went to bed at midnight and you, you know, you woke up at eight, but you only had 85% sleep efficiency. Mm. So you actually slept six hours and 42 minutes, mm -hmm. right? And that's actually very normal for us to not sleep the entire time that we're in bed even if it feels like you did. Right. And actually you... Because um, you forget, because of this chemical in your brain, you forget that you were awake, yeah. You do not transfer short-term memories to long-term memory uh -huh. every time you're up for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it's normal for somebody to be up, you know, 15, 20 times a night. That's totally normal. As you get older, you remember some of those awakenings more than you do when you're younger. So it mm. feels like your sleep is more fragmented, even if it's not. Interesting. Yeah. 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 When you say up, you just mean conscious, not not literally out of bed and walking around. Yeah, it can be both. I mean, a lot of awakenings can be what are called micro arousals, where you just you know you change position, mm. and you do tend to remember more of those in the morning. Like you, I recall that I did change position a bunch of times. That happens earlier in the night as well. Um, but yeah, so that was what, even though these communities were sleeping about, you know, just under six hours to about, you know, on average about six hours and 20 minutes per night, that's as much as they were sleeping. Their sleep period was between seven and eight and a half hours per night. Mm. So that means that in order for them to get the sleep that they were getting, they were in bed for you know, seven to eight and a half hours, which is basically what the National Sleep Foundation recommends. Be in bed. Most people, most adults need seven to nine hours of sleep per night. So they call it sleep because that's most, that's how most people understand. I sleep. see. So it's not actually altered consciousness for eight hours. It's be in bed for eight hours and you're likely to get the amount of altered consciousness that you need. Yeah. And, oh, and, and that's why it's seven to nine, because some people need to be in bed nine hours to get what I call complete sleep, which means mm. that they are purging all of that pressure that is accumulated through the process of being awake for 16 hours so that they are starting the next day with as low a sleep pressure as they have, you know, they can have, and then they're, then that's going to help them be alert and right. really functioning the next day. Uh, do all mammals sleep? Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it looks different in all sorts of animals. You have hemispheric sleep. Yeah. yeah. Right. Was it sharks or who does the hemispheric? <laughs> dolphins. Dolphins, dolphins yeah. do that. Yeah. Dolphins. So one half of the brain is sleeping. The other half's keeping shit going. Dolphins, narwhals, giraffes, migratory birds. So it's, it's, common and where one half of the brain sleeps the other half is is awake functioning uh engaging with the environment it's fascinating yeah so there's and that seems to suggest that sleep is clearly a biological necessity of the organ yeah of the brain yeah, yeah. 
And but not of the rest of the body, right? Like if dolphins, if only half the brain is sleeping yeah. and the other half is like, or, or migratory birds, are they sleeping while they're flying? They are. So usually if when you're in hemispheric state, the physical activity is in somewhat, it's, you're kind of coasting, but if you're, mm. so for, for animals that need to continue to move like a migratory bird or a dolphin, um, then you still need to be somewhat alert to what's happening in your environment, mm. but you're also not, it's not at a, you're not going to be demonstrating wave jumping and playing. Okay, right. Yeah. So you're on sort of a standby mode. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? So let me tell you one yeah. other thing about that study, you know, so I don't forget, is that what correlated most strongly with sleep onset and offset was not light, uh, but temperature change. Mm -hmm. So when the environmental temperature changed and started to dip kind of most precipitously at night, that seemed to trigger the initiation of sleep. And then in the morning, when temperatures started to rise from its nadir, you would have a very strong vasoconstriction in the hands and the feet. So that would mean that all the blood in the hands and the feet would be sent to your core and to the brain, theoretically in preparation for the brain to be alert. And that would actually cause an arousal. And so even at times of the year when the, the environmental temperature was warm, uh, the hunter-gatherers would wake with their, their extremities, their hands and their feet, very, very cold, because all the blood is left, and that is a part of the process of waking. So if we think about you know, our environments that we can have such, you know, such control over, um, we're probably keeping it warmer mm -hmm. than natural living communities. And we're, it's also probably relatively stable, unless you're sleeping with a window, window or windows open. Right. right. Maybe you set a thermostat at 65 or 68. But if you think about it, temperature declines over the course of the night. And is that decline important to get the body to have as efficient sleep as possible? So that's maybe one of the reasons why these hunter-gatherer communities are sleeping less than we thought in, and still being fully sleep satiated is because it's highly efficient sleep, mm. perhaps in part due to you know, this drop in environmental temperature. Right. So with things like Nest, which is this smart you know, thermostat, right. you might be able to um, I'm very excited about the future where you, you'll be able to have, uh, we'll have smart lighting and smart temperature and all of it is going to try to then mimic and more the natural, natural environment. World, right, yeah. right. So during the day, yeah. you'll have blue enriched white light and that's going to augment cognition and, and arousal because mm -hmm. it's going to be mimicking more outside light environments. Um, and then at night, the temperature, the tone of the light or the temperature of the light is going to change the intensity. It's going to dim and it'll just, it'll be set it and forget it right now. You'll we have to do this stuff manually and only certain people who are, you know, either kind of real geeky on this stuff or super proactive on their health are going to do it day by day mm -hmm. to, you know, make sure that their, their own internal environments within, you know, their apartment or their work is uh, is actually you know more of a natural like environment i can foresee a day not too far off where uh, you know people who are, sign up for human os yeah. just uh you know download uh something that plugs right into their home system and uh, dims yeah. the lights and you know the whole thing because it's all it's all there it's all ready to go right you've already got the smart thermometer the thermostats you've got the led lighting that can change yeah. tonality it's the technology's all right there it's there i totally agree with you i think between five and ten years 
uh, we're going to start to see a lot of this sort of integration and then it, it'll, you'll be able to just upload this pack right, right to your right. thermostat into your smart home. Right. And then instead of having to, that's nice. I mean, environment shapes our behavior so much and to, and, and, and our health. I mean, so much of our health is in response to the signals it's receiving from the environment. Right. In fact, it's a good way to think of, like sometimes people think like, oh, you know, exercise, it, it can augment health. Actually, the right amount of physical activity is just a component of health. And when it's right. missing, then a component that is necessary to keep, you know, cells functioning properly right. is, is, it's a prize that we actually can do as well as we do. Yeah, well, it's like you're missing an uh, essential nutrient. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the uh, this. I'm sorry to keep talking about you know my book. It, it's Please. it's like you have <laughs> a baby. You can't stop talking about your baby. I love it. Um, but the you know the point I make in this book is that uh, we live in a zoo. We're always going to live in a zoo. Yeah. We we cannot li- return to the natural environment. Yeah. There are too many of us. We've destroyed most of it. Yeah. So the best we can do is design the zoo we live in to replicate as much as possible the natural environment. We want to be in the San Diego Zoo, right. not the Calcutta Zoo, right. you know? Right. And so the things you're talking about fit exactly into that paradigm. Yeah. It's like, look, you are going to live in a house. It is going to be artificially heated and lit and, you know, yeah. but you can you can shape it. Yeah based upon what we're learning about the natural environment for our species. And, you know, that's where it's at. I'm so, I'm very optimistic about our future because I think in terms of health, because I feel like these sorts of things are, you know, can, and that's why one of the reasons why I love chatting with you, because your kind of social and cultural angle on a very, dovetails exactly with what I'm doing. And mine's more health oriented, although we overlap. Right. Um, Yours, I, it's, I don't know. I think it's why we can just talk for hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been our... Well, I mean, for me, it's more like a theoretical thing and more focus on yeah. the prehistoric environment. And yeah. then what you're doing is taking that information and, you know, merging it with technology and, and sort of more high tech stuff and application, which is yeah. really important. Yeah, I mean, you need all of it. It is. And so it's, it's funny because I don't think that we're going to, I don't think technology is the solution. I just think it's a part of the solution. Yeah. So when I talk about quantified self, which is this idea of self-tracking, it's, it, it succumbs to the same problems as, as education, as a single application to change, change our behavior. Mm. Each of them is insufficient usually to get somebody to sustain a behavior long-term. Right. But when you have deft environmental controls, like we were just talking about, when you have this, you know, when you're constantly learning about aspects of health that are reinforcing to an overall message versus confusing and fragmented, right. dif- you know, diffusive, right. where it's like, oh my gosh, it's too much. It's a, it's a really important distinction. If you're feeling, at the, if anybody who's listening is feeling, God, there's just so, there's so much, there's the microbiota and there's light and there's just, it's, there's a lot to learn. Actually, when you start to then, I think, become engage enough in the right sort of system, you start to see how all things line up, right? And it all lines up with the prehistoric environment. That's right. That's the thing. That's right. And that's why, you know, I was giving Stephen Pinker all that shit when we were talking last night. Yeah. Because the, the denial of the validity of the sort of ancestral health model yeah. is so ridiculous. 
It's so ridiculous. Yeah. You want to know how to move? Look at how hunter-gatherers move. You want to know how to eat? Look at what they eat. Yeah. And it's not, it's not Rousseauian romantic bullshit. It's yeah. just saying we're an animal. Yeah. We evolved in an environment. Yeah. That's the environment we're suited to. It's yeah. no crazier or more you know, romantic or bohemian than saying the bonobo enclosure at the San Diego Zoo should mimic as much as possible the conditions of Congo, because that's where they come from. Absolutely. That's where they're going to live longest. That's where they're going to be happiest. Yeah, it's... it's and what I love about it is that, it, so my, my combination, I've been describing my efforts as a combination of quantified, you know, ancestral health and quantified self. So ancestral health is in part the paradigm that informs what we should be doing. Quantified self is then a way to actually trigger and stimulate behavior mm. and engage so that you continue to do it in the face of a pathological environment that's yeah. constantly trying to get you to do the wrong thing. Right. And so it helps you have a more kind of durable relationship, hopefully. Um, but you have to also empower any system that you choose to support your health with value. Right, because if you buy yeah. a Fitbit yeah. and you throw it in the drawer, which it happens with great frequency, then it can't help you. Right. But in order for you to continue to wear it, then the friction of using it and recharging it and looking at it needs to be supported by education. And that's why I think this model or what HumanOS is doing is we're t we're giving you the education about the importance of these things. We're showing you how to translate that into daily steps yeah. and then how to track. Not everything, but parts of it so that you actually stay engaged. And I see that there's real value with that. There is. And, and also applying, I, I mean, I like what you're, you're saying about how it can be overwhelming for people to think, you know, I've got to think about this. I've got to think about that. It's too much. I've got, I got a job. I've got shit to do. I don't have time for all this. But if you organize your environment in a way that the environment requires you to do the things that you want to do. For example, I always say, like, I have really bad, um, I don't know, micro-discipline, mm. but I have good macro-discipline. Yeah, I know the difference. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't know, I'm making up these terms, so if they exist, I, I may be using them wrong. I've but, never heard it, but I totally know what you mean. So, well, like, yeah. I can't, like, I'm not the guy who gets up every morning and does 20 push-ups and, like, goes for a jog and da-da-da-da, right? Yeah. But... I'm, I am the guy who says, fuck it, I'm going to move to Spain because my lifestyle there is a lot better. Yeah. I walk more, I eat better. and what, So I'll get up yeah. and move my life to Spain yeah. because in Spain I know I'm going to do the things that are better for me and yeah. make me feel better, yeah. right? Um, and so I saw something the other day. There's some inventor invented a stationary bike mm. and it said, and I don't know if this works out scientifically, but this article claimed that the stationary bike could uh, power a small home electrically for a day right? on an hour of, of workout. Right. So I thought, man, that, that's what I need. I live in a tiny house, mm. have that bike there, mm -hmm. and have like, you know, a, a big hassle to turn on the backup system. Yeah. So every day it's like, oh, if I want to use my computer and I want to watch TV or I want to like, you know, do the dishwasher, I got to get on this bike for an hour. Yeah. So make it part of your daily life, yeah. not an optional. See, that's what I hate about exercise. Like, yeah. it's boring. Yeah. Like now I gotta go fucking jog for an hour. Yeah. No, we're talking about basketball. I like basketball because yeah. hey, these are my friends. We get together a few times a week. You know. Yeah. Um, it's enjoyable, but it's got to be integrated into life. When it's this add-on, yeah. I never get to it. 
So this is, you're, you're speaking my language, Chris. This is, I created something called Intune Training, which I've been using for years, and it stands for Integrative and Opportunistic. And the idea is that you're integrating it into your life in this opportunistic fashion. Opportunistic fashion. So you're not like clustering. If we think about exercise, we cluster all of our physical activity into some chunk and then which also isn't good for us right it's better to have sustained movement because if you're sitting six hours it doesn't matter that you went to the gym for an hour it's not that uh getting a workout is bad it's that if your pattern is lots of movement and a lot of sedentary time then that's problematic right that's and every time you know you look at a study that shows health outcomes from you know people that are walking ten thousand steps a day every Every research study that I've read always has a line in there that says, and what was particularly interesting was uh, that there seemed to be additional health benefits or, or a lot of the health benefits came when people spread their steps out over the day right. versus just, I'm going to go, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do 10,000 step walk, and then I'm going to sit right. in my chair. Right. So part of Intune training is this concept. It's super simple and it's like, okay, you know, today's sit up day, you know, and the, you know, not, of course you could do this completely organically with yourself, uh, but just kind of determining kind of various movement patterns. But this idea is that it gives you an idea of what you can do today. And then you just do little bits here and there. And yeah. the other aspect about engine training that I like is that it's also in tune. You're trying to get in tune with your body. It's not always about getting better. So mm. much about health, unfortunately, uses a performance mindset, which is adopted from getting better at a sport. Right. Really, what I want to do is maintain an adequate level of physical activity that is c- kind of commensurate with what research says is you know really good at re- you know reducing premature mortality and keeping me functioning well, and I want to maintain that level regularly. Right. You know, and uh, with pleasure. With pleasure. Yeah. That's. I think that's a big problem with uh, the American approach to health. Yeah. That we are so suspicious of pleasure as a culture. Yeah. The no pain, no gain approach to to workouts. Yeah. You know. I, I think that's bullshit. I, I don't think the body does not want pain. <laughs> yeah. it, it just doesn't. I mean, unless you're into kink, you know, and that's a whole different thing. <laughs> but I mean, as far as like healthy workout activity, yeah. it's about dance. It's not about work. Do you know there's a word in there's this mofunke um, is the okay. the root of the word funk, mm. and in the West African language mm. um, that it comes from. It means positive sweat. Oh, cool. Not negative sweat. Not mm. the sweat you get from work. Mm. It's the sweat you get from sex and dancing. Mm. I think that's great to that's have so cool. like different words for different types of sweat. Yeah. I think the number one thing that you can do is to find ways to move that you love. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the reasons why things like SoulCycle, which is really growing in popularity, it's ridiculous. It's thirty dollars a class, but so but it's a fun experience. Hmm. There's it's it's like you're in a club. There's this you know great electronic music, and there's a community, and you usually very good instruction. And the reason why it's you know it, absolutely massive in popularity at the places where it is, they they moved exclusively into you know kind of communities that have enough wealthy people to support such a high price tag for a spinning class. But the reason it's popular is because it's fun. Hmm. It's super fun. Right. Right. And, and it's almost like choreography on a bike. It's, and it's, it's where you're using a bike in, in ways that bikes aren't actually used. You get up, you're, you do these certain patterns of movement. Um, 
you know, where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're moving, you know, kind of, uh, all, anyway, all these different ways. And it's the choreography uh, of it that is, I think, that makes it great. Right. Yeah. 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 Definitely about what we were talking last night. My wife's from Africa. Yeah. And, you know, for her, movement is essential. Yeah. Like, we're, we're at an American party and people are standing around talking and she's like, this isn't a party. How yeah. do you guys call this a party? Nobody's dancing. Yeah. You can't have a party without dancing. Come on. I felt that way. I, so I was telling you last night, I didn't drink alcohol through high school or college. And, um, I just didn't, it just didn't appeal to me. But when I started to go, there's a, there's a great, I don't even know what to call it, but it was, there's a club in San Francisco. It's a gallery. And every Wednesday night from five to ten, there was a party that was thrown there, a happy hour, called Mina, uh, uh, called Cool. So it was mm. Cool at Mina. Mm. Cool spelled Q O O L. The party lasted for seventeen years, the longest wow. running party, and it oh, was really? because it was this is what your is what Cassie is explaining. People that were students, starving artists, financial district, you know, people, lawyers, all homeless people, a huge cross section would go there and the DJ would change every 45 minutes and people would just strip out of whatever they were wearing, you know, like they'd take their tie off and sweat really? their ass off. At 7.30 of the night, it was better than any club you could imagine. Oh, man, that's and it, great. it was the most kind of eudaimonic experience I've ever been a part of. It was a phenomenon. It was, a, it was an amazing thing that's almost hard to describe. Uh, because all of the references that you might, you know, if you've ever been to like a club in Vegas, this is the opposite of that. Yeah. You know, this is, I think, what this kind of Teutonic tribal, it just, it, it, would, it was speaking to people in a powerful way, it would change them. Yeah. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. And it was my primary form of activity or exercise, we'll call it, for, you know, probably more than a half a decade. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Listen, I know I know you got your uh, father-in-law on his way and stuff yeah. to do. So, uh, and we've we've gone over an hour. That's great. Again, yeah, man, we did it again. Yeah. So, uh, thanks so much for doing this. And I'm going to release this with the launch of Human OS. So, people listening to this, uh, go to Human OS. What is it? HumanOS.com or something. HumanOS.me. Dot me. Someone's okay. been sitting on Human OS time for. 15 years. Yeah, clever bastards. They, they jumped in there. Yeah. Um, HumanOS.me, and this is Dan Pardee, P-A-R-D-I. You can Google him and see all his research and blogs. Is it all going to be at HumanOS, or are you you have other sites? Yeah, so at the moment, um, I've had a site to test a lot of the, kind of some of the, some of the ideas, not all of them, but it's Dan's plan. Dan's and so, plan, right. you know, that's, that... Right now, um, we'll, everybody that is a member there, that's reading the blogs there and listening to the, you know, seeing podcasts, et cetera, is just going to be, their membership will just be transferred over, which means they'll have an account there and they can, right. they can engage with it how they like. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Dan. Yeah, thank you, Chris. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering
Dance into the ground. 